So we're uh, obviously starting the book of Esther, which is, um, which is a, a controversial book for many reasons. It was one of the most highly debated books of the whole Bible. If you look at the way the canon was formed, which is a fascinating subject that I would love to talk to anybody about. If you think that uh, the formation of the canon is a reason to doubt the faith, it's actually just the opposite. And again, I'd love to have a conversation with anybody who wants to talk about that. But the way that the Bible was formed was organically. It didn't just kind of fall from heaven. These books were, you know, were some, um, there were a lot of books, and then some were included and some weren't. And, uh, and Esther was one of those very few books that was actually debated um, amongst both the rabbis and the early Christian councils. And the reason that it was debated um, is because it, it does not mention the word God. There's not a single mention of the word God in all 11 chapters. It's a pretty long narrative. That's why, you know, all these readings the next couple of weeks are pretty long, these narrative readings. And in all of those um, chapters, there is no mention of the word God. And so it seems like it's a totally secular book. It's also saturated with the ethics of the Persian Empire. So you don't hear anything about sacrifices or circumcision or anything distinctly Jewish. It's all set in the Persian Empire. No mention of Yahweh. Uh, in verse 5, you see there that kind of the heart of the book is in the citadel of Susa. So it's not only in Persia, it's not only in the capital city of Susa of Persia, it's in the citadel of the palace. That's where the action takes place, in the halls of power of the empire. And I think it's the very reason that Esther is extremely helpful today. Uh, in our culture, that is also a kind of an alien empire to the kingdom of God. Um, If you haven't noticed, God is uh, increasingly kind of marginal in public discourse. Uh, God is not a thing that is mentioned a lot um, in in public places in our culture. Um, The place you mention God is in your home or in a church or a synagogue or a mosque um, or maybe having coffee at Panera or something like that, but uh, not in public. Also, the values of the kingdom of God are increasingly alien values to, to America. So you stick out more and more just by being kind of a normal Christian. And if you look at verse 7, um, the, the ethics of the empire are pretty much described there. The king actually gave orders that every man do as he desired. That's, um, that's called autonomy. Like those new autonomous cars that drive themselves around. Autonomy means that you're in control, you're at the wheel. It's a law unto yourself. That's what autonomos means. Auto is self Nomos' is law, and so pride and autonomy are the rule in the empire. Uh, the king gave orders to all the staff and all the palace that every man do as he desired, verse 7. And yet in that mighty empire, this is the encouraging thing, is that in that mighty empire that we heard about as the passage was read, look at verse 5 of chapter 2. This is why I wanted this verse to be read, because at the very tail end of that story, there's this little glimmer, little flicker or flame of the kingdom of God that's still there. Even in the empire, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. And I want to look at that, uh, the humble kingdom that is um, kind of illuminated or manifest in the person of Mordecai amidst this uh, might and pride of the empire, the faithful presence of this, this person of the kingdom who's sitting there serving as a kind of a low-level civil servant uh, in the citadel of Susa. So first the empire, then uh, Mordecai. And um, the, uh, the writer of Esther, by the way, is uh, we don't know who it is. 
Um, it's a very shrewd uh, and very subtle historian. And uh, they, they've met, the, the, the historian writes with very measured objectivity, pro- possibly wrote it to Persian officials. And that's one reason it probably doesn't mention the word God. There's also no uh, critique of Persia outright. And yet, uh, if, you're, if you're Jewish or you're a person of the kingdom, you're kind of chuckling to yourself the whole time with just the foolishness and the decadence uh, and the stupid law that the, that the, king, the king passes. Uh, there's a very subtle undercutting of, uh, of the ethics of the empire. Now, Xerxes is actually the, the name of this king. I'm not sure why the English Standard Version goes with Ahasuerus. That's, that's not the term that historians use. This, this is a man named King Xerxes, the son of Darius, the son of Cyrus, one of the most powerful kings uh, in the history of the world. Probably at this point in human history, the most powerful man ever to live. And uh, it says in verse 1, he reigned over 127 provinces. His rule went from Pakistan to South Sudan and the whole arc in between. So the Persian Empire was mighty. And King Xerxes, who you can Google and look up and see a lot of things that he did, um, he was the most powerful man. And to show his power in verse 3, in the third year of that reign of, of Xerxes, and we know that's 483 B.C., in the year 483 B.C., uh, it says that he gave a feast for all of his officials, servants, the army, the nobles, and the governors. And scholars think that he was trying to consolidate his power by bringing all the leaders of the empire to Susa to have this long, long feast. It was actually, the 180 days was probably more of a presentation of his glory, and then the feast would be the last week. But he brought all these powerful people to the empire's capital, and he was doing this to consolidate power so that he could go and invade Greece. Because that was one part of the world that uh, the Persians had not yet conquered. So they go to the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, and anyway, the, uh, the feast in verse 4 is given because he wanted to show off his riches, uh, his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. So that's the purpose of the feast, to show how great he was. And, uh, and you hear all those things, the, the, the precious uh, linens, uh, the... The gold that, that was, uh, all the platters were made out of, the, the diamonds, the rubies, all the things that are described, all to show how glorious Persia is and how glorious Xerxes is. And at some point at the end of this week, probably in a fit of drunken ecstasy, uh, I can imagine Xerxes leapt up on the head table and uh, he shouted out, don't let anyone tell you to stop drinking. You know, keep drinking. That's the rule of the empire. The uh, the New Living Translation says in verse 8, By verdict of the king, no limits on drinking. And it's kind of a funny thing to have to make a verdict, uh, to make an edict, that there should be no limits. He's basically saying, I hereby command that if, that if anyone tells you what to do, they will be punished. There must be no limits on what you want to do. And again, this is kind of the, the essence of the, of the empire. Whether it's Persia or America, um, the essence of the empire is pride and autonomy. In verse 8, there is no compulsion. Do as you desire. That's the rule of the land. I'm reading a really good book uh, by Thomas Howard. It's called Chance or the Dance. It contrasts a worldview of chance and then a worldview of the whole universe being like a dance. And one thing that he says as a result of a worldview of chance, that everything is kind of random and contingent, happens by accident. Uh, One consequence of that is that it is human autonomy. That we are essentially in control of what is right and wrong, true and false, good and evil, beautiful and ugly. 
And this is what Thomas Howard says about autonomy. He says that autonomy conjures up images of risk, courage, progress, and self-determination. No one looking over our shoulder. No longer will Osiris or Yahweh or Zeus tax us with inquiries as to what we're doing. We owe fealty to no one but ourselves. So he, he, he kind of builds it up as this bracing, exciting thing, autonomy. But he goes on to say, this declaration of autonomy has issued not in a race of free and masterly human beings, but in a race that can be described as bored, vexed, frantic, embittered, and sniffling, without any consciousness of moral conflict. Visit your friends, leave your clothes on, take them off, read a magazine, cohabit, chat, whatever. And in our increasingly polarized culture, I think um, where people are getting divorced over political views, that's actually kind of a a new trend as divorce is happening because of political views. And in an increasingly polarized culture, the one thing that everyone seems to agree on is is that no one's going to tell me what to do. And no one's going to tell you what to do about your, your sex, your guns, your money, your house, whatever it is. No one's going to tell you what to do about anything that you have. And that's what we all agree upon. That's America, the land of the free. This is an extreme example, but I heard um, someone told me this week about a church where uh, the pastor and his wife would get together with another couple, and they would watch porn together. And the, the shocking thing about that is not just that that happened, but that this person told someone without any shame about that. I heard a song on the way over here uh, about, it was sung by a, a young woman about how she's happy that she gets the guy for the weekends, and then he can have his wife for the weekdays, but she's just glad she can have him for the weekends. And again, it doesn't seem like there's any shame in that. It's just kind of normal. It's the, uh, it's the culture that Thomas Howard was describing. Uh, leave your clothes on, take them off, read a magazine, cohabit, chat, whatever. And Xerxes is a man uh, who was never told no his entire life. And that's true of a lot of children in America. They're never told no their whole life. Xerxes was given gold medals for coming in 10th place, 11th place, 12th place. Also somewhat true in America. There were absolutely no checks on his desires. Um, and it led him to this, this particularly despicable act where he commands his wife, okay, the, the, the woman that he's in covenant with, lifelong covenant, his beloved uh, Queen Vashti, his beautiful wife, he, he, he describes uh, this command where uh, Xerxes asks, well, it doesn't ask, demands that, that Vashti come and become an object of lust in front of, uh, in front of Xerxes and his drunken friends to just show off the kind of catch that he can have. And a lot of rabbis thought she came in naked. Um, you know, who knows what he was, well, he did, she didn't come in, but that he asked her to come in naked. Uh, it says that when he was drunk, this is verse 10, his heart was married with wine, uh, he commanded the seven eunuchs to bring in Queen Vashti before the king in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And um, it gets worse than that. You know, autonomy can lead you to that, but it can, it can go beyond that, where when that absolutely ridiculous horrible request is made. When she refuses it, he becomes enraged. So verse 12, Queen Vashti, thank God, refused to come at the king's command, and the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. You know, he's so proud, and he's so sure that no one can ever cross him, that when he does this terrible thing, and his wife won't listen to him, he uh, throws a tantrum. 
He, he becomes uh, enraged and anger burns within him. And, and don't think of this as kind of a funny little cute anger, you know, like Prince Humperdinck and the Princess Bride. I couldn't think of other silly kind of foolish kings that get angry and stomp around and kind of beat their fists. But uh, think of someone like that. And now think that's not what Xerxes is like. Not at all. And if you want to know what Xerxes is like, and this can kind of last you throughout the whole sermon series, you've got to watch the movie 300. Actually, don't watch the movie 300. Watch a YouTube clip of, just type in Xerxes movie 300. And it'll just show you the scene where he is presented. And he's terrifying. Uh, This is not a man that you would want to cross. And I don't know how much that depiction of him in the movie 300 is based on reality. But I would imagine that the director and the writer tried to get together some stuff to find out what a king like Xerxes would look like and be like. And he's depicted as very tall, very strong. His head is shaved. He has heavy makeup on his eyes. He has piercings everywhere. He's covered with just rings of gold. And there's chains all over crisscrossing his body. He's got this giant golden collar on. He's riding on this, he's riding on like an aircraft carrier carried by hundreds of men. Um, and he's on this giant throne made of two bulls. And when he begins to walk off his platform, all these people come running up and create a human staircase for him to walk down. And he's, uh, he's very soft-spoken, very measured, very ominous in his threats, full of haughty condescension as he talks to the Greek general uh, Leonides. And he thinks he's a demigod. He was worshipped as a demigod. People literally worshipped him. And he says as much in the movie... And demigods are easily offended. And he's so arrogant that he actually surrounded himself with eunuchs. It says in verse 10, there were seven eunuchs that were always serving in his presence. And what that means is that he would, uh, he would castrate the most talented young men in the empire. He would gather the most talented people, men, in the empire. And the reason he would castrate them is because if they could have children... And there would be a threat to his dynasty because then maybe they would try to kill him and overthrow him and have a dynasty of their own. But if he castrated them, then they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't be able to do that. They also wouldn't sleep with the queen. So uh, that's why he did that. Uh, He's so proud. He's so arrogant. He feels so threatened um, that he does that. And he, he is so offended by what Vashti did that he made this law. He was actually helped by the, by the eunuchs to, to, create the, to craft this law. Um, which a law that would have made Big Brother proud. And it says in verse 20 that all the women must give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. I mean, imagine passing a law like that, that that you shall honor your husband. You shall um, give him his due. And they they spend millions and millions of dollars to enforce this law. This is just more the foolishness of of the empire. In verse 22 it says they, they were commanded to send letters to all the the royal provinces from South Sudan to Pakistan in every language. And the letter will say that every man will be the master in his own household. I mean, he does all this because he's offended by his queen not doing what he wanted her to do, this horrible request. I look at verse 17. This is the motivation behind it. What if the queen's behavior is made known and wives start looking at their husbands with contempt everywhere? It it just shows you... uh, how clever the writer of Esther is um, and how much he's exposing the foolishness of the empire. And it's, it's interesting. We live in a very touchy culture, very easily offended culture, very prickly, very huffy, very oversensitive and snappy and irascible, where the ultimate moral trump card is um, that is so offensive. What you just said to me is so offensive. 
And if you ever have a lifestyle choice, criticize. Someone will say, I can't believe they said that to you. I can't believe she said that to you. That is so offensive. There's a YouTube video called How to Be Offended. And it gives three easy steps. Uh, Number one, listen to what someone says and then make it all about you. Uh, Number two, create a large amount of tension inside your body. And number three, project outrage onto the person who speaks to you. So that's the empire. Uh, A place of uh, unfettered uh, expression of desires, autonomy, pride, touchy, easily offended. And of course, that's still with us today. Um, that That is very much with us today. Verse, verse, verse 4 kind of is the epitome of it. Xerxes showing off his riches, his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. And I mean, how much do we do the same thing? In subtle ways, uh, with our children or our accomplishments or our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our wife, our husband, um, the household we grew up in, the college we went to, our resume, you know, whatever, often very subtly, sometimes in a way of, I just want to thanks to God or praise God for this, that, or the other. So often it's, it's just, it's about us. It's just the empire. And we get very upset when we're not performing the way we think we should. It creates all sorts of anxiety and comparison. So that's the empire. Now what about the kingdom? And uh, I only have one verse to work with. Uh, you know, God didn't give me much material in this first, <laughs> this first section. of. And it's actually kind of hard to find throughout the book of Esther, the good news or the hope. But it's there. It's just subtle. Um, there was a Jew in Susa, in the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. I love how the author traces it all the way back to the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob who created tribes, who created a community that would change the whole world. And, and the author is saying this, is, this project has not ended. They, they might be very small in this giant empire, But God's project of changing the world through these tribes, these sons of uh, of Jacob and their their wives and their families, is not over. Um, There was a Jew in Susa whose name was Mordecai. Now now again, Mordecai is a nobody. Uh, He would have been undetectable. There would have been uh, not a single article written about him. Uh, No one in Susa would have known him. He was probably a low-level civil servant. He was Jewish, so his people were known to be defeated and exiled and humiliated. Uh, these are the people that were known to be, to be uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But he's also God's, one of God's people. Uh, he's, a, he's a Jew. And uh, there, there was a particular favor that's on Mordecai. And you see it throughout the whole story. And, it, and it's also his cousin, his young cousin Esther, who's the hero of the book. And uh, one of Mordecai's distant cousins who lived... A hundred years earlier than Mordecai was also a, a civil servant in exile. And his name was uh, Daniel. Uh, Daniel is how we call him. Um, Daniel was also from uh, a tiny oppressed minority people. He was also a Jew. He was serving King Nebuchadnezzar instead of King Xerxes. He probably was in the same citadel uh, of Susa. And uh, Daniel had this very famous vision that I, I would assume that that Mordecai would have known about um, because it was written 100 years earlier. And in the, in the vision of Daniel, he sees a, um, a massive statue. Some of you know about this vision. I like to talk about this vision. Uh, Daniel sees this massive statue on a plane underneath a giant cliff. So imagine a, a, a you know, 100, 200 foot tall like Statue of Liberty type statue. But in this statue, 
the head of the statue represents uh, the Assyrian Empire. And then the torso is the Babylonian Empire. And then the midsection is the Persian Empire. And the legs are the Grecian Empire. And the feet are the Roman Empire. And it's all one statue. Many empires, one statue. And I think, I think Daniel would give me permission to say that, that the heels could have been the, the Holy Roman Empire that reigned throughout the Middle Ages. And the soles could have been the British Empire. And the toes could have been the American Empire. Or the Chinese Empire. Uh, or the Indian Empire. All the empires of the world. All in the statue. And so Daniel sees this terrifying statue. That's the first part of the vision. The second part of the vision is... On the high hill above the statue, a piece of the earth kind of breaks away. You imagine like a a landslide begins and it kind of breaks away and begins to slide down the cliff. And this giant mass of earth comes down and just shatters the statue. And it's uh, described as a boulder uh, not made with human hands or a rock, literally a rock. Not made with human hands smashing the statue. And I believe that Mordecai would have known about that. Based on the way he acts in the story and his confidence in God and his desire to fast and pray and his trust that Esther can save the day, I think that Mordecai knew about this wrecking ball that would one day shatter all the empires, including the Persian Empire. He saw something in the distance. And we need to see that too. You know, We need to have that hope that this is not uh, what it's all about. This is not... This is not the end of the story. Uh, This is not even the main part of the story. This thing we live in. This empire that we live in. Uh, Because the boulder, uh, the rock that was not made with human hands, um, is is a king. It's it's not made with human hands because this is not a king that was set up by humans. This This was a humble king that no human would ever crown to be king. It's God's king. Um, This king rode on a donkey. And this king uh, was the slave. He described himself as the slave of all. And this king uh, washed his disciples' feet. And I believe that Mordecai and his young cousin Esther were, were longing for that, that king uh, as slaves in the shadow of this empire. And they were patient and they fasted and they prayed. And they even were willing to risk their lives because they were waiting for that king. They believed that he was coming. This great king who would uh, turn everything around. He would flip the world upside down. He would, he would transfer the values of the world. He would make them completely new. And the ways of Xerxes would be done. And he would bring in a new way. At, uh, at dinner last week, or actually now it would, it would be a, a week and a half ago, um, my whole family's together. And my older brother uh, said that, that John Oliver is the only thing that is getting him through the Trump presidency. And if you know John Oliver, he is uh, this hilarious host of HBO's uh, Last Week Tonight. And he's one of those weird combos like Colbert of kind of comedian and political analyst. And you don't quite know, you know which one he is exactly. Do I, do I treat him as a political analyst or as a comedian? And do I trust him here or here? It's, it's hard to know. But anyway, John Oliver, um, my brother was telling us, uh, he wrote a children's book. And I don't know if you know about this children's book, but uh, his children's book is now the Amazon uh, number one bestseller. And his children's book was a parody of a children's book written about Mike Pence, who John Oliver doesn't like very much. And the, the, the children's book about Mike Pence was written by his daughter, Charlotte. Okay? And, and Charlotte's children's book was going to be called, or, or is called, it's now published also, 
It's called Marlon Bundo, A Day in the Life of the Vice President. And it's about this family rabbit who they called Marlon Bundo, I guess from Marlon Brando. Um, And uh, it's about this family rabbit that plays the part of the vice president. And so it's to teach children what what a day in the life of the vice president is like. And Charlotte said that uh, her dad, Mike Pence, is her hero. Okay, and so then Oliver, who doesn't like Mike Pence, said, um, if you buy my book, you're telling Pence to go F himself. And so all these people went out and bought Oliver's book. And, uh, and everyone at our table was laughing about this because, you know, Pence is kind of weird or self-righteous and, and a pietistic maybe. But anyway, I don't know if you like Pence or not. Um, I, don't have a, I don't know a lot about Mike Pence. But, but a few days later, my wife looked into this story about Marlon Bundo. And um, she wanted to know, like, what, what exactly was his first book like? You know, why did Charlotte write this book? And how did she react to John Oliver's book? Which he actually, he had it published the day before hers was going to come out. So this was Charlotte's reaction uh, to, to the uh, criticisms that her book was getting, to the mockery. Uh, she said that she went out and immediately bought a copy of Oliver's book. And she tweeted, happy to support charities and important causes. Because all of Oliver's uh, proceeds went to charity for his book. And then in an interview she said... Uh, his book is contributing to charities that I think we can all get behind. And now we have two books that are giving to charities that are both about bunnies, so I am all for it. Now, that might sound like a, a lot of build-up for not much. You, know, that you might think, why did he tell that sermon illustration? That's ridiculous. But, um, and it, her, her reaction might not be impressive to you at all. But that's kind of the point. My point is that her reaction is so different uh, from, from Xerxes. Or really from what any empire would have thought uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, because, because we live in a culture on the other side of that, of that rock that has slidden down and undercut the feet of the empire. And uh, we, we live in a culture that is saturated. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, it is saturated with, it just uh, pervaded with kind of the aroma of Christ. Um, it goes way back in our DNA. We can't get rid of it. Um, it's just part of who we are. And the, this, this king that Mordecai was looking forward to, that Charlotte looks back on, she's, she's a believer. And um, this is a king that did not show off in front of big wigs, King Jesus. In fact, he dined with outcasts and outsiders. This is a king who did not objectify women, but he treated women who were abused and cast aside. He treated them with dignity. Completely opposite of Xerxes. This is a king that did, that did not fly off the handle when he was snubbed. We know what he did when he was snubbed. He turned the other cheek. And not only that, when he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, And so this is a totally different kind of world we live in as a result of this coming king. And again, you probably don't know this. Our our culture doesn't acknowledge this. And you might think that Xerxes was like a sociopath. But he wouldn't be at all. They would have thought this is very normal. And you might think that humility is kind of normal and, you know, love for the poor and the defense of the weak and care for immigrants, that's just kind of the default factory settings of a human being. But the fact is that uh, throughout most of, of human history, what is normal is, the, is Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the only reason we value humility and we value the rights of the poor and the weak and the homeless is because of the impact that that boulder, that rock came and made on the world. 
Uh, Tom Holland is a famous British historian of antiquity, not a believer in uh, Christ. He wrote a book called Persian Fire that was a bestseller. And uh, the, the book was about Xerxes and about his failed invasion of Greece, which the movie 300 is also about the Battle of Thermopylae, where, he, where Xerxes tries to invade Greece and he fails. Uh, he's beaten by very few people. But anyway, Tom Holland loved ancient empires. And he says he grew up uh, reading the Bible. He was raised to be a Christian. And Tom Holland says, uh, The focus of my fascination as I read the Bible was not with the children of Israel or with Jesus. It was with the adversaries, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans. He loved their, their ferocity, their bravado. He loved the way that they fought wars. He loved uh, just their, um, their willingness to just their lust for power, their will to power. And Nietzsche loved these people too. And so did, so did Hitler. Um, this, was, this was kind of the fascination of Hitler, these ancient empires. But, but Tom Holland, about a year ago, he wrote this article that kind of shocked the intellectual world of England. It was in a, it was in a magazine called The New Statesman. And the, the title of the article was Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. This is a very famous British historian. And this is what he says. I'm going to read a, a paragraph or two from this. The longer I was immersed in the study of classical antiquity the more alien and unsettling I came to find their values. The values of these empires, like the Persian Empire, they practiced murderous eugenics. They trained their young to kill. They left their children on rocks to die. These were nothing that I recognized as my own. It was not just the extreme callousness that I found shocking the more I read, but the lack of any sense that the poor or the weak had any intrinsic value. And this is the point I'm trying to make by talking about Tom Holland. He puts it like this. Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of how completely novel a deity Jesus Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of the gods to uphold order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. And he concludes the article this way. Jesus is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take it for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not a Greek or a Roman or a Persian at all, but I am thoroughly and proudly Christian. Now, he actually doesn't say he is a believer, but what he has come to recognize is that his values, that he is, and and yours as well, that we've inherited post-Christianity are very much the, the values of of King Jesus and not the values of Xerxes. And archaeologists have actually found an inscription on a stone monument in Persia in three languages that says, I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of the whole earth, far and wide. And in contrast to that, we know, based on the book of John, that when Jesus was crucified, also written above him was uh, king of the Jews in three different languages. And as we worship this crucified God um, in this meal, especially in this meal, as we really get down to the heart of who he was and the fact that he would rather suffer um, than to inflict any suffering, that he would rather be punished than to punish, uh, we are saying that it it is not Xerxes that is the king of kings and lord of lords, but it's Jesus. And that his ways have begun to take over the earth. And one day we'll completely take over the earth. And that as we take this meal, we actually take 
some of his DNA into ourselves. And, uh, and we who are, who are very much like the empire, um, we are very much like Xerxes, that the actual life, DNA, thought process, thought system, mindset of Jesus can actually come into us as we take part in this meal. And so that obviously uh, leads to the question of, uh, if you're somebody uh, that, that Jonah was talking about who's, who's here this evening and you like the, maybe you like the singing of the church, you like the community of the church, um, you're like Tom Holland that really believes in the ethics of the church, but, but you're not quite convinced that, that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, uh, the last thing we want to do is put any pressure on anyone to partake in this meal who doesn't believe those things. This, now, it's, a, it's an open invitation to anyone who wants to come and have the very DNA of Jesus in their own life. So it's a, it's a wide open invitation. But um, if you're not comfortable yet saying that you believe, then that's a good reason not to partake. But it's certainly not a place that requires any virtue. This is not a table of virtue. This is a table of people who are vice, uh, of vice, who are vicious, who are sinful, and they know they need to be changed. So let me pray for us as we come to this table.